All right, I'm going to go ahead and get started. It's almost 20 after, so we'll jump in and open with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for another day of life and breath, Father. We pray that we would be able to focus on your word and that we would be able to believe it and that you would change us by it, Father. Give us wisdom this morning in your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I thought uh, I would do a first sort of topical look at Deuteronomy this morning. We left off last time and we didn't get to the concept of holy war. And so that's all we're going to be really looking at this morning. The, the teaching of holy war. What is holy war? First, I want to look at the means of war. And we'll begin to see that in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 24, when God actually commands his people to go and to fight and to kill. Deuteronomy 2.24, rise, take your journey and cross the river Arnon. Look, I have given into your hand Sihon, the Amorite, king of Heshbon and his land. Begin to possess it and engage him in battle. This day, I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So notice some of these sovereign, gracious acts of God. I will put the fear of you. I have given you. And yet Israel still has to go in, right? I have given you the land. In other words, I've given it to you as you go in and fight and conquer it. But I'm ensuring you the victory if you trust in me and do what I say. And God even adds, I'm putting the fear of you on the nations. They'll tremble. They'll be in anguish. So that's an encouragement that, yes, I will give the land to you. It's in effect, I mean, in a sense, God didn't need to do that. And he didn't need to tell them that. He could just say, go in, fight, you'll win. But he adds these encouragements to them that even spiritually and psychologically, the people are already defeated, as it were, and afraid of Israel before they've even set foot uh, in the land and into battle. And, of course, the first part of the wars that we see are on the other side of the Jordan. They're not even in the promised land yet. And I want to just notice this beginning in verse 26. I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to Sihon, king of Eshpon, with words of peace, saying. Now, I want to notice that when God offers peace to this nation that he's already declared that Israel is going to destroy... It's a legitimate offer. If this nation would say yes, there would be no war. Now, God's already told them what's going to happen. They're going to say no. But that doesn't mean the offer isn't legitimate. And you've always got to understand that when we read passages that talk about God's sovereign control of the future and God saying what's going to happen beforehand. And then we see an offer that doesn't line up with that. And we say, oh, well, wait a minute. You know, how can that be? Is God not being truthful? No, he's being 100% truthful. You know, when he says to Israel in uh, the promise, or I'm sorry, when they're in Egypt and he tells Pharaoh, you know, Moses goes and says, just let them go three days into the wilderness to sacrifice and that's all it'll be and they'll come back. If Pharaoh would have said yes to that, that's all it would have been. The fact is God is knowing that he's going to say no and he's telling Israel beforehand and that they're leaving Egypt for good and not just for three days. But Pharaoh actually had the option. And if he actually would have said yes, they would have only left for three days. 
I mean, God uses Pharaoh's hardness of heart to further the promises that he makes to his people. And that's what we see here. We know that Sihon is going to have a hardened heart from God, and he's going to say no. In fact, verse 30 makes that clear. But Sihon, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass through for... The Lord your God, God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might deliver him into your hand as it is this day. But still, if he would have said yes and not have been hardened, there would have been no war. He would have kept his kingdom. And so just, you know, you've got to recognize God's sovereignty and man's freedom and all this. God is always completely 100% uh, honest and forthright and offers things that are real and legitimate. But he knows in his providence and even in his, his considering what he himself is going to do in the future, what will happen. And so he can tell us beforehand, oh, this is going to happen. Go and say this. And again, if you, just, if you don't think about it, you, it might sound dishonest. But it's not dishonest because it's legitimate. They're just going to say no. And then they're going to get the punishment that God's already predicted. So God pre predicted Sion's uh, hardness of heart. What's interesting, if you go back to Numbers and read this account, it mentions nothing about God hardening his heart, nothing about God giving them in the land. It just sort of matter-of-factly records what Israel did, that he sent the messengers, that he asked, please let us go. We'll stay on the king's highway. We won't take any food. We won't take any water. In fact, um, they'll pay for everything. And so God is giving them, giving this kingdom, a not only a an assurance of peace and that nothing of theirs is going to be harmed, but they're going to actually prosper because Israel's going to be paying them all this money for food and water as they pass through the land. I mean, this is like, you know, when the Super Bowl comes to Pittsburgh, we get all this money because people pay for parking and food and tickets. And well, that's what this country would have gotten. They would have been blessed if they would have just said yes to Israel. But no, uh, the king doesn't want to say yes. He wants to destroy them. He's already puffed up. If you read some of the, um, history about this region. Sion probably conquered some Moabites earlier, taken some of this land already. So he's already puffed up. He thinks he can, he sees an easy target and he wants everything. He doesn't want just their money for food and water. So it's interesting that again, we see this God's sovereignty and man's freedom in this text. Let me just read the, the verses and you can see how this plays out. So beginning in verse 27, let me pass through your land. So he sends the messengers. Let me pass through your land. I will keep strictly to the road. I will turn neither to the right or the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat. Give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot. We're not going to go through mounted, you know, ready for, to fight. We're going to pass through. We're going to pay for everything. We're not going to raid your crops or your houses or take anything. We're not going to trample down anything. We're going to stay right on the path, right on the main trail, the main trade route. And then verse 29, just as the descendants of Esau who dwell in Seir and the Moabites who dwell in Ar did for me because they did pass through Moab and Edom until I crossed the Jordan to the land which the Lord our God is giving to us. So God's even revealing, you know, the future to this king. But Sion, king of Heshbon, again, would not let us pass through for the Lord your God hardened his heart, hardened his spirit, made his spirit obstinate, that he might deliver him into your hand. And the Lord said to me, see, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to possess it that you may inherit his land. It's interesting that God does this based upon this king's wicked sin and disobedience. That because this king wickedly disobeys his people who proclaim to him the word of God, offer him even blessing through it, he says no, so he gets destroyed. 
how God in his sovereignty uses the sinful rejection of his word by wicked people to bring judgment to them. They get what they deserve, in other words. They get what they ask for. So Sion and his people came out against us to fight, and the Lord our God delivered him over to us. So just as God said, go and fight and you'll win, they went and fought and they won. We defeated him, his sons, all his people. We took all his cities at that time. Uh, We utterly destroyed them. We're going to come back to this concept, utterly destroyed. It's a particular word there, and that's what we're focused on this morning, holy war. The men, women, and the little ones, that's what it means to utterly destroy everything. And we left none remaining. Sometimes it includes the animals. Here it does not. We took only the livestock as plunder for ourselves with the spoil of the cities which we took. All right. So God gives the victory. Israel obeys. God delivers. You get the length of the land from the river Aror, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, from the city that is in the ravine as far as Gilead. There was not one city too strong for us. The Lord our God delivered all to us. So God is giving Israel the victory, but Israel has to go and fight. Only you did not go near the land of the people of Ammon, because God said not to, remember? Anywhere along the river Jabbok, or to where the cities of the mountains, or wherever the Lord our God had forbidden us. So if they go where God says, they will win. If they go where they're forbidden, God's judgment will come upon them. All right, so that's the concept here. And then, after this victory, God stirs up another kingdom against Israel. And again, when God stirs them up, God gives them over to their greed and their desires. He never puts anything evil in anyone. When we read God hardening, we should never think that. God allows them to do what they want to do. He withdraws the restraining um, actions of his spirit that's in everybody. Everybody has a restraining of their sinfulness by God and his common grace. And that's how God hardens. He just gives them over gives them over to what they would do, lets them be what their sins would have them be if it was allowed to run riot in them, and God allows it to a certain degree. He never completely abandons anybody. But um, I always liken God's hardening um, to, and as far as I know, I invented this um, picture, but to a cement mixer, right? Um, If you're behind a truck in Pennsylvania, you know, and you see a cement mixer and you're going up a hill, you're like, oh man, it's going to be an extra five minutes. You can, sometimes you get on like five miles an hour and that truck is just, you know, going up the hill and around the curves that you always get here in western Pennsylvania. But the key with following something like a truck, like a, you know, coal truck, but especially a cement mixer, you can tell a lot of times with a coal truck too because of the cover. Sometimes you can tell if there's a load in it right away. But with the cement mixer, if the, if the tank is spinning, then you're in trouble because there's cement in the tank. If it's not spinning, there's nothing in it because it doesn't need to spin. But the reason why it needs to rotate is that cement will naturally of itself harden unless something is agitating it. And that's the way I understand God hardening the heart of man. He doesn't put evil in. He doesn't put, you know, disobedience in. It's already there. That's what we are. We're totally depraved. All God has to do is withdraw his agitating, restraining presence that keeps you from hardening like cement. And as you know, God slows down the cement mixer and it gets a little harder. And that's all God does when he hardens anyone's heart. He gives them over to their sinful desires to a certain degree. So that's what happens with Sion. That's what happens with Og. Og, king of Bashan. Og is a giant, one of the descendants of the giants. 
And it says, the Lord said to me, do not fear him, for I have delivered him and all of his people and his land into your hand. You shall do to him as you did to Sion, king of the Amorites. So the Lord our God also delivered into our hands Og, king of Bashan, with all of his people. And we attacked him until he had no survivors remaining. And so God, having, having given them the victory over Sihon, now that becomes the encouragement. As I gave you Sihon, so I will give you. So Israel, you know, is building up sort of a resume of faith. They can see, oh, God gave us this one. That means we're going to win here. Then God will use both of them. As I gave you Sihon, as I gave you Og. Now you can take on, you know, this other people. And so the more they win, the more they obey, the more they should be encouraged. Look, God is faithful. God is giving you the victory. So that's uh, Israel is going to be the means by which they inherit the land. I'm sorry, Israel at war is going to be the means by which God brings his promises to pass. So let's consider this concept of holy war. And in Hebrew, it's just the three consonants, haram. All right, H-R-M. It's the chet, uh, the rough breathing H, not the ha. Uh, um, so it would be pronounced haram. And it just is usually translated devoted to destruction or utterly destroyed or even doomed to destruction. Um, you get these particular words. It's funny, as I was preparing this lesson, I was considering and I just looked up some verses. Um, you know, we, we know in Israel right now that uh, in the Gaza Strip, this group called Hamas is doing evil. Um, and it's interesting because if you're a student at all of the Hebrew scriptures, you know what the word Hamas means. It's a Hebrew word you see all over the place. It means violence. It means wrongdoing. The one who is Hamas is the violent one. In fact, in Genesis 6.11, when it says that the earth was filled with violence, it literally says, Vatame ha'aretz Hamas, and the earth was filled with violence. Hamas, violence. Um... So these uh, words uh, just are significant even to this day. But the haram is the concept of holy war. And we see it appearing in Deuteronomy the same number of times as it appears in the other four books of the Pentateuch combined. So Deuteronomy in the first division of the Old Testament scriptures, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, is really focused on holy war more than the other four books combined, because it's giving Israel a recap of the wars that they have fought. Now, when they get into the actual Holy Land in the book of Joshua, they'll fight it even more. And in fact, the book of Joshua has the word haram more than any other book in the Bible, more than Deuteronomy, which Deuteronomy has it more than the, you know, the other four books combined, and it's the second most. And so even more in, in, in Joshua, but then you understand that because the whole promise of Israel going in was you're going to take the land and it was the land that's dedicated to God and that's holy. And so holy war would be in the land. But in this instance with Og and Sion, God, as it were, extends this concept outside the land. We're east of the Jordan in these two battles. We haven't crossed the Jordan yet. The first battle in crossing the Jordan is what? Jericho, right? You remember from Sunday school. Uh, after they cross the Jer Jordan, they take Jericho. But that's the book of Joshua. So we don't get any of that in Deuteronomy. But we still get this whole development of this, of this concept of holy war. And I know this is difficult um, for Christians to understand. And I want to try to help, hopefully make sense of it to you. 
Um, there's, there are very clearly uh, in the Old Testament two kinds of war. There's ordinary war, and there's laws for ordinary war. And then there's holy war, and there's laws for holy war. Now, this is unique to Israel. A lot of things are unique to Israel or to Abraham or to David. I mean, in a lot of ways, we are like them, right? We are people of faith. They are people of faith. You can bring certain things one-to-one into our lives. Abraham was to believe and obey God. We're to believe and obey God. But God doesn't tell you to take your son and sacrifice him. Okay, so there's some unique things with Abraham, and that's true for Israel too. And this concept of holy war, even though there's a principle that does come into the New Testament, that we are not to in any way, uh, you know, uh, syncretize faith or add to other religions or anything, you know, to utterly ban all that is foreign from our faith. You could even think of the regulative principle in, in Reformed worship, that we don't bring in anything that God doesn't command. Uh, that's something like what we're seeing in the holy war command of Haram. That everything is devoted to God because we're in his holy presence. What does that mean when we're in his presence? Well, for the wicked, that means utter destruction. And that's part of why uh, Israel is called to destroy in this fashion. Uh, But only at this time. I want to notice that as well. All right, so let's see the first example we really begin to see of holy war is in verse 34. We took all his cities at that time and we utterly destroyed. Whenever you see that in King James, New King James or ESV, utterly destroyed or devoted to destruction, you're reading the word haram in Hebrew, haram, which is, again, holy war. All right. And we see this in verse 34. We took all the cities, we utterly destroyed them. What does that mean? The men, the women, the little ones. We left none remaining. They wiped out every human being. They killed everyone. And then in chapter 3, verse 6, to Og, uh, the king of Bashan, and to his cities, we utterly destroyed them, as we did to Sion, king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, the women, and the children of every city. So you get the word haram twice in that verse. All right? So God's utter destruction of peoples is what holy war is. So as Christians... We want to say, how can this be, right? How can this be just? I know a lot of times, and if you read certain, you know, uh, kinds of theology, more progressive or liberal theology, liberal theologians, and I mean that in the classical 19th century sense of reading uh, human origins and human explanations for the divine supernatural word of God, then you have no, yeah, you, 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 there's nothing you can do with this concept. Um, if you're going to rule out that there is a holy God behind our faith, then holy war is, is disgusting to you, right? I mean, Bailey used to tell me this when he would go to those, when he was at Pittsburgh Theological and, you know, how uh, seminary professors who had taken vows to uphold the scriptures yet would say things like, you know, the idea of God requiring the death and bloodshed of living creatures for his people to worship him makes God a bloodthirsty God. And they would just criticize and rip up Uh, the whole concept of God being holy and man being a sinner because they they really didn't believe in a supernatural holy God. But that's the only context that holy war makes sense, that there is a God who is holy and that we are sinners and we actually deserve death at his hands. 
And so the, the concept of haram has to have that in the background. Now, if we go back to the first time that we really see this concept, it would be in Numbers chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. The king of Arad, the Canaanite who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the road to Atharim. Then he fought against Israel and he took some of them prisoners. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then here it is, then I will utterly destroy. There's Haram. I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and he delivered up the Canaanites and they utterly destroyed their cities. And so the name of that place was called Hormah. Did you see it? Haram. Uh, They actually name it after this concept of holy war. And so holy war is the practice of complete destruction. Um, And it is something, again, that wasn't invented by Israel. Just like circumcision. Just like the concept of covenant was already in a convention in that society, in that world. When we see God in the word of God first using these things, so also... This is the way the people in the Near East at that time often practiced war. They wiped out everybody, man, woman, and children. There was no prisoners. There was no surrender. If you surrendered, you died. All right. Now, there's a difference, though, just as there's a difference in how God takes you know, circumcision and uses it for a religious significance, so also um, there is a difference when Israel practices holy war from the way in which For example, the Assyrians or other groups of people would do it. We know from the Moabite stone and other um, ancient records that when a a people group was destroyed, man, woman, and child, uh, you know, in war, it was as an act of sacrifice to their false god. So, you know, you can think of the Americas and the, you know, the Aztecs and others who practiced human sacrifice. Well, that was happening in the Middle East. This is one of the reasons why God did devote these peoples to destruction because of their utter uh, uh, bloodthirstiness and wickedness in, in practicing human sacrifice. So that's what they did. They would sacrifice, for example, men, women, and children to uh, Ashtar and to Chemosh. Uh, And you have statements from these ancient kings saying, and I devoted the entire city to you as a sacrifice. That is never what Israel does. Israel never sacrifices wicked people to God as if God wants human sacrifice. That's never the reason Israel does it. But that is the reason why these other nations were were practicing this same concept as as an act of religious devotion to their wicked, bloodthirsty gods who wanted them to kill and shed the blood, and sometimes they would, again, drink the blood and eat the... I mean, it was, you know, this is the kind of stuff you saw in the Americas uh, when Europeans began to come over with cannibalism and blood sacrifice. That's what was happening in the ancient Near East when Israel was going in to take over. So the same kinds of things. But the first reason that I think we should recognize the, the causes and the reasons for the haram is that God is holy. All right? God is holy. And if God were to dwell with men, we would be consumed completely. All right, if God were just to appear before men in, his, men in their sinfulness, God in his holiness, without any kind of covering, restraining, uh, grace that would go forward, pure justice would be, man would be wiped out. And that is the punishment for um, 
capital offense. In fact, at first in the garden, if you think of it, every sin was death, right? If you sin, the day you sin, you will die. That was God's judgment on man in the garden, and that was the judgment of every sin. If you want to talk about, you know, what are the sins that are capital? Well, in the beginning, all of them. Every sin, you die. Any sin, you die. Now, by the time we get to the um, Old Testament laws of the Torah, if you number them, and different ones have different ways of numbering them, but if you really number them, you know, in a logical and succinct way and not like make, you know, okay, um, uh, blaspheming parents, disobeying, you know, make all these different things, uh, different laws. It's, it's incorrigibleness that would be the capital crime. And so if you do that, you get most, most evangelical and reform commentators summarize 16 capital offenses in the Old Testament law. There were 16 capital crimes. You say, wow, that's a lot. Well, first of all, it was all sin. So God reduces it all the way down to just 16. This is how merciful God is, how gracious he is. All sin deserves death, but under Israel, only 16 crimes are going to be punishable by death. And, and just compare this to right now the United States federal code. Go online and look. Right now in the federal code of the United States, there are 42 capital crimes. We have 42. Israel had 16. As strict and as cruel as we think, you know, in this, uh, our, our biased minds, and we think, oh, Israel is so strict and cruel. They only had 16 crimes that were capital. America, right now, 42. Now, yes, we don't enforce them that often. But there are right now on the books 42 different crimes in America. I know, it's funny, the one list says 41, but it actually numbers it 42. So I think they just forgot to update the, their total. But uh, even if you want to make it 41, 16 to 41. Okay? Even if you break apart Israel's, so you count every little tiny little nuance different, you still only get in the 30s. You still don't get as many as what America has today. So don't, you know, believe liberal scholars and unbelievers and critics of scripture. Israel was so bloodthirsty and so wicked and their nation was so cruel and they had all these capital crimes for violating the Sabbath and for, you know, swearing to parents. And we have 42, they had 16. Put in perspective, okay? Who's more cruel? And again, I'm not even saying that that means it's cruel, but if you're gonna buy that kind of garbage, then apply it to, to what's real and not just what's fantasy. All right, and, and yes, there were different crimes, but God's uh, system is different, and what God determines is more wicked is more wicked. It's funny that for all of the capital crimes that Israel is commanded, never is it described as because of the haram. No one is ever put to death because of the haram for breaking a law if you're a citizen of Israel, except for one. There is one, and that is for idolatry. Exodus chapter 22, verse 20. He who sacrifices to any God except the Lord only, he shall be haram, utterly destroyed. The only time capital punishment is described as haram is in Exodus chapter 22, verse 20, which is also the first time the word appears, not the first time of holy war, that's in numbers, because the word has a lot of meanings, as a lot of Hebrew words do. They carry a lot of freight. So the first time it appears in the context of holy war, I've already given to you, is in Numbers chapter 21. But the first time it appears is in Exodus, where it is a response to idolatry. Remember, Israel's a theocracy. God is actually dwelling with his people. They're a holy people. Therefore, there are certain things that in the presence of a holy God are an abomination 
that were to be punished differently. And um, God determines their laws and their punishments. By the way, if you read Calvin or you read any of the Reformed scholars, you'll see a, a universal agreement that while the principles of the laws of Israel remain in effect, um, uh, the laws themselves change and the punishments change. Calvin does a lot of work on this. That just because, for example, adultery was punishable by death in Israel, that doesn't mean it should be by a nation today. Um, the Reformed scholars understood that. And so, you know, this idea that you can somehow recreate Israel in a Christian nation is, would have been anathema to them. Uh, and in fact, it was tried once at Munster during the Reformation, and it was horrible. Uh, it was, uh, in fact, if you ever get a chance, read about the city of Munster in the Reformation times, in the 1500s, when they tried to set up, and they called it, they renamed the city the New Jerusalem. And they brought all the laws in, one to one. And they had a particular man, and he was called the sword bearer. And if you did such and such a crime, you had to visit the sword bearer and all of this stuff. And the city just completely imploded on itself. Um, we are not Israel. We're not called to reproduce Israel. God is not making any other theocracies in the world today. But there was one at this time, and that makes the haram um, understandable. All right, so that's the first reason God is dwelling with men. Israel is his people as a nation, not as a church. There's a difference. Um, God doesn't give us a constitution and laws and, you know, all of our leaders and tribal portions of land and everything else. So this is a unique, never-to-be-repeated situation, just as, you know, Abraham sacrificing his son. God never required that of anyone else. Samuel dedicated to the Lord and dropped off at the temple. God never tells us to do that. Don't drop your kids off at the church. That's not, we don't practice that kind of dedication. That was a one-shot deal with Samuel. All right, so the holiness of God and, and Israel's call to be holy uh, is another, um, I think, related reason for the haram. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be holy for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the earth. You are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure. Again, the same kind of thing repeated multiple times in the book of Deuteronomy. Therefore, you shall not eat any detestable thing. This is what makes the dietary laws make sense. Israel was being this in a particular way. This holy people. Deuteronomy 23, 14. For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give your enemies over to you. So they were, in a real sense, God was with them. And they had to do certain practices, so forth, that showed forth that would be fulfilled in Christ and other things. But that's the reason for the cleanliness laws. The priesthood as the holy of holies. You know, only the priests could be in the temple and so forth. And so there were degrees of this that were shown in various ways. Um, I could read Numbers 18, 14, Leviticus 27. You can look up some of these things. But remember, the priests are a type of Christ. They received, as a type of Christ, the priests received the firstborn. All the firstborn in Israel was to be given to the priests. Whatever opened the womb belonged to them, including men. And they had to redeem them. Remember, you had to redeem your sons and your unclean animals with money. But... Again, this is part of this God is holy dwelling with his people. But the priest as a sort of, a not, I mean, the whole people picture that, but then the priesthood pictures that within the whole people. And so the priests get the best of the new wine, the grain, the first fruits, whatever is ripe, which they bring shall be yours. Everyone who is clean in your house, every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. There's the haram. 
Isn't that interesting? Every devoted thing in Israel shall belong to the priest. Do you see how the haram is, is really caught up in the idea that God is holy, which is why the wicked are wiped out in his presence. But God has, has brought Israel near and the priests were brought near. And so the priests get those holy things dedicated to God in worship. And so that would be the first fruits and the first of the clean animals that they were to be given to the priests. All right. Um, interestingly, uh, Leviticus 27, 21. But the field, when it is released in the Jubilee, shall be holy to the Lord as a devoted field. It shall be the possession of the priests. Even the fields can be dedicated in this special way to God. And then the priests are given those fields. Uh, five times we get the word haram in two verses in Leviticus 27, all in the context of worship. Notice it. Leviticus 27, 28. Nevertheless, no devoted offering, there's the first haram, that a man may devote to the Lord of all that he has, both man and beast, or the field of his possessions, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted offering, third time, is most holy to the Lord. No one devoted who is devoted for destruction from mankind shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. All right, so you get this concept again of God's holiness. Something devoted is devoted to God and that God is there in his holy presence. The wicked are destroyed. And then you have to have this priesthood type of, uh, of, of worship that they could express that way. But even beyond Israel, right? The devoted thing couldn't be eaten by even the Israelites. And the Israelites were holy compared to everyone else. All right. The third reason, God is punishing the wicked through Israel's war. We can't forget that. God is using Israel as a means to judge wicked peoples. Um, God's allowed to do that. He's allowed to use means that themselves are not perfect to judge uh, other wicked peoples. God does that all the time. And in fact, uh, sometimes he uses pagan nations. I mean, he, he tells Israel through her prophets that Babylon is going to judge you because of your wickedness. And sometimes the people didn't like that because, well, Babylon's not as bad as us. I mean, Babylon's worse than us. We're not as bad as Babylon. and It didn't matter. Uh, there was a sense in which they were worse because they knew more and they were God's people. And so there was a higher standard. But uh, even if they were, God's allowed to use a more wicked people to punish a less wicked people because everybody deserves punishment. All right. So Deuteronomy 9, 4. Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you saying... See, this might be the temptation, right? Because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. It is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. And so God was judging them for their sins, and God's allowed to do that. God's going to judge everybody for their sins, and if he wants to do it through a physical execution in this world, he can begin to do that. But again, verse 5, it is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out before you, that he may fulfill the word which he swore to your father. So God, in his judgment, and remember, he told Abraham earlier, there's going to get, you know, the Amorites need 400 more years before I bring this kind of punishment. So the Amorites were wicked. They were practicing human sacrifice. They were doing all these things, uh, offering people to their gods. And God still was patient, 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 patient for 400 years. And now Israel's going to go in and wipe them out. Men, women, and children. Because God had determined to judge them. And if you don't understand that, if you don't understand that God can judge the wicked and that everybody is wicked and that everybody deserves judgment, then holy war doesn't make sense. But if you understand that, 
then holy war is actually restrained. It's actually a restrained judgment of God because it only hits this people group and not the whole world. You know, compare holy war with the flood of Noah. Every nation, every person wiped out. Why? Because God is holy and they're sinners and he's judging them. So God's allowed to do that. And in fact, in the time of Israel, it's greatly restrained. If we really looked at things justly, if you want to just put, you know, your justice glasses on with no mercy, then you're shocked at why only, you know, the Canaanites are destroyed. Everybody should be destroyed, including Israel. So God is greatly restraining his judgment and his justice on the, on the wicked when Israel only destroys the people in this tiny little strip of land in the Middle East and they're not called to wipe everybody out and then, you know, wipe themselves out. All right, uh, Deuteronomy 18, 12. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord your God and because of the abominations, the Lord your God drives them out. So because of their sins, God's doing this. And then Deuteronomy 18, 20, or Leviticus 18, 24. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things for by all these, the nations are defiled which I am casting out before you, for the land is defiled. Therefore, I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out, vomits out its inhabitants. So that's a description of what God is doing. They're wicked, they're doing evil, and that's why I am judging them by you, but if you do these things, well, then the distinction isn't there anymore. And so God makes it clear to Israel um, that they could come under, they could come under the ban. That they could be judged this way, and the reason why they weren't was because uh, they were believing in God and, and obeying God, and God has put his, their, his grace upon them. But they can't presume upon that and just start sacrificing to idols, or they're going to be uh, banned as well. But uh, that's number five. Number four is to keep the the reprobate wicked from corrupting the people of God. Another reason. Uh, why did God command them to be destroyed? Because God is holy and he's punishing the wicked, but also because these wicked peoples would corrupt his people. So this is, a, this, in, in a sense, a, um, a help to Israel if they do obey God here, because if they don't obey God and let these wicked peoples leave, God's own word says they will corrupt you. You will become like them. And that's what we read in Deuteronomy 7. 1 to 6, verse 4. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And so the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. Therefore what? You shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. Your eyes shall have no pity, nor shall you serve their gods, for they will be a snare to you. So I am holy. They're wicked. They deserve to be punished. I'm using you as that. I'm giving the land to you through that. And they would corrupt you if you don't. So God has delivered these people over uh, to his wrath. The day of mercy is over to them. They got 400 extra years in the time of Abraham and Abraham's people had to suffer waiting for them to become wicked enough for God to judge them this way. But God's mercy and grace eventually have an end. Uh, his, at least his common grace, not his saving grace. Um, God could have done it some other way, but he chose to do it this way. Um, Remember uh, Genesis 15, 16, in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And verse 13 says 400 years. So Israel could have come under the ban if it became too radically corrupt. Now we're on number five. And let it not cleave in your hand the abominable thing, the cursed thing. 
in order that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you just as he swore to your fathers. And so Israel, again, they're not earning anything by their obedience, but God's just saying, don't run in the sins of these peoples. Right? He's not talking about being good enough to earn the land. Don't ever think that. But he is saying, if you actually go and begin, I know you're sinners. I've given you the sacrificial system. Here's what you do with you when you sin. But if you turn away from that and start to worship other gods, then you're going to find yourself in the same situation as these wicked peoples, and these judgments will fall upon you. Um, then the, uh, the final reason is God is the one who is ultimately destroying the wicked peoples. We, we can't forget that. In holy war, God is the one who has decreed, who has determined that the day of the judgment of this people has come. Right? Everybody got, has a day when we will stand before the Lord. If you're in Christ, that'll be a day when you're delivered into heaven and all, the, all of your sins have been taken by Christ. You don't need to fear that day. But uh, those not in Christ, they have their time, and God is merciful, and he lets them live, and he lets them do many things. But for these people groups, God has said that the time has come. All right, his patience has ended. And notice how he does it in a sense that, again, also is going to be, uh, first of all, he's doing it. He's doing it through Israel, and he's doing it for Israel's good. And so he's going to do it in a certain way. Deuteronomy 7.22, the Lord your God will drive these nations out before you little by little. You will be unable to destroy them at once. That wouldn't be good. It wouldn't be good for them. Why? Because then the beasts of the field would become too numerous. If they, if they could just you know, press a button and everybody in Canaan drops dead, by the time they got to those places, there would be all sorts of wild animals that would have come in, God is saying. So I'm going to let you do it slowly. The Lord your God will deliver them over to you and, and will inflict defeat upon them until they are destroyed. Again, if Israel believes and keeps following God here, he will deliver their kings and you will destroy their name from under heaven. And no one will be able to stand before you until you have destroyed them. You shall burn their carved images of their gods with fire. You shall not covet their silver or their gold, nor take it for yourselves. Again, sometimes the band, everything was, uh, you know, even the, the silver and gold was to be just buried or burned. Lest you be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God, nor shall you bring an abomination into your house. Here it is. Lest you be doomed to destruction, lest you be haram. You shall utterly detest it, utterly abhor it, for it is an accursed thing. All right, so this is the law of the haram, the holy war. That again, you know, if you read the scholarly literature, you'll, you'll just see so much criticism. And this idea of the evolution of religion will just be talked about everywhere. And Israel's still at a primitive state here. And, you know, it just completely discounts the inspiration of scriptures. And really, I mean, it, it, isn't, a, it isn't a difficult concept, is it? I mean, it's God is holy, we're sinners, and we ought to be judged. And at this time and in this place, God did it. Right? He did it through his people in order to bless them. And again, it's way restrained compared to Noah, where everybody is wiped out. So go ahead, Grace. I was just going to say, just chapter 7, verse 10, what a poignant verse. Mm. And he repays those who hate him to their face. Yeah. He will destroy them. He will mm. not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Yeah. yeah, it is. And, you know, I think so often, too, I think the common view of people is God's not going to judge. Right? I mean, you read, read uh, Peter that, you know, well, where is the promise of his coming? You know, nobody thinks God's going to judge. I mean, if there's one thing that this world knows, I, I can't remember the one commercial I saw, you know, that um, not too long ago where, 
well, God loves everybody. You know, I mean, and they say that in the sense, not in the sense in which God's benevolent love really is on everybody, but they say that in the sense in which, well, God's never going to do anything for anybody that's going to bring them any kind of accountability for their actions. And, and you know, we get rid of holiness. We get rid of the, that God hates sin and must punish it, the idea of justice. And then we turn, you know, God into this sort of, I don't know, guy that sits up on top of the mountain, you know, with his hands out and smoking marijuana and peace, love, and little donuts. And, you know, God is not that God. God is holy, and he's going to judge the wicked. And his love is a holy love. Jesse. Also, just thinking about looking at the mercy of God God is the one who keeps his people. I mean, if you're kept today, don't think, well, I was better, right? I mean, God kept me. Daniel. Do you have a sense of where Israel is at today in terms of their belief systems? They're fighting Hamas. Would they consider that a holy war? Do they still, you know, yeah. do they still believe in any of the Old Testament process? Yeah, the rabbinical system going back to after the Roman destruction, uh, Rabbi Akiba in the second century really changes Israel into what you see today. Uh, you know, the things with the, the black hats and the, you know, the, fly, the tassels and stuff that they wear and the certain outfits. None of that's in the scriptures, right? They had different things commanded to them. And, and they have reinterpreted, you know, all of the sacrificial laws and everything else because they don't have a temple and they can't do so many things that they're called to do, the priesthood and so forth. So Israel really radically changed after the Roman wars and they had to come up with a way in which they could worship God with no temple, no priesthood and you know, and, and they kept the cleanliness laws. They kept the uh, ceremonial laws. You know, Jews are not, you're not going to be able to buy a pork sandwich in Israel or anything like that. Even a cheeseburger, because I think they wrongly interpret the kid and its mother's milk. You know, well, maybe that cheese is from the milk of that burger, and it could possibly, so we can never do that. Uh, and that's not what the verse is talking about. But, but uh, so, you know, They've changed a lot of things. They still would say that they are the people of God. They're waiting for the Messiah. Modern Judaism, and of course, there's different, you know, there's the progressive and the, and the you know, the Hasidic and, you know, various ranges, just like in Christianity, lots of different beliefs along those lines. But in general, the belief is that the Messiah is coming. He's never come before. You know, that's, that's what they remember at the Passover. They put the chair for Elijah. When Elijah comes, the Messiah will come. And the Messiah will come when the Jewish people do enough good works to deserve it. That's really what their religion has turned into. That when we, when we the Jews are good enough, and sometimes in some groups will include the world in that too, and their outward good. But you know, for if you were to practice the Sabbath, like with a Jew, they would they would say you, you should not do that. Only Jews get to practice the Sabbath. You know, so there's a lot of, you know, different things. And I know I'm just touching on different elements. But um, bottom line is, I mean, you know, they're, they're definitely not in, involved in a holy war like what we see here looking to these texts. Uh, they are talking about, at least from what I've read, 
setting up a tribunal, you know, sort of like Nuremberg and trying these, you know, these terrorists for war crimes. And, you know, it seems to me that that would be pretty just considering that these people came in wanting to kill men, women, and children. You know, if anything, the Gazans, you know, the terrorists were acting kind of like Israel. You know, we want to wipe out all the Jews to the last man. And I think that's been the the radical Muslim understanding of Israel that, that it's their duty to kill every Jew until they're dead. Uh, and in a sense, that is kind of a reverse haram. I don't know if they think of it that way. I, I know the Jews or the, the Muslims have that concept with holy war. And I know there's varieties of Islam and not all of them, you know, do that. But this, the concept, uh, you know, of jihad, ho- that is holy war, you know, and what do we do? I mean, it's struggle, but but in some circles, it's if you die for Islam, that's good. If you kill others for Islam, that's the martyr. You know, for Christianity, we die. We don't kill others. That's our martyrdom. For them, it's kill others. Uh, so, um, you know, I look at it, and I, you know, I know you asked a big question, Daniel, but I mean, I look at Israel as I, I don't see them as, you know, the people of God in the sense that the church is. Okay? I don't think God's done with the Jews. You know, I do think that, that God is going to, to have a revival among actual ethnic Israel, and a lot of Reform scholars believe that. Even Calvin uh, indicates that. But, but I don't look at that, you know, as the Holy Land or the Holy People. Until they come to Christ, they're actually a false religion. Now, I am, believe me, I'm 100% behind Israel in what's going on because they're a just nation. They have just laws, and they're being invaded by the most despicable kinds of terrorism that can be. They want to kill their babies. I mean, this is just horrid, uh, what, what they're doing to them. And this is the false religion of Islam that, that brings that kind of wickedness about. But, yeah, so I'm, believe me, I'm, I pray that God would help Israel to defeat their wicked enemies, but... You know, unless the Jews come to Christ, they're actually in a false religion. Judaism, as we know it, is a false religion. Uh, it's, it's a better religion than Islam because they don't say, say go kill people for, for Allah. But it's still a false religion because they don't think Jesus has come. And he has. Judith. Yeah. Yep. It's funny, Judith, I've often thought that in a certain sense, and I really want to qualify this, you know, when we see ancient peoples offering human sacrifice, there's actually more truth there. There's more of a knowledge of what they are and what they deserve, you know, in a a twisted and corrupt sense, you know, a very haughty sense to think that you can do this. But still, they recognize that nothing less than a, a human dying is going to satisfy God. 
I mean, there's a sense in which I think they, they, you know, fallen man naturally gets that. And I think that's where human sacrifice comes from. These animals aren't enough. And that is the fact behind Jesus. Jesus has to offer himself. All of the bulls and blood of bulls and goats could never satisfy for sin. And I think, again, you know, reason and, and just a, a correct understanding of just reality, you know, you recognize that. So that's why I think we, we see human sacrifice breaking out across the world in, in so-called primitive religions. And yet there's a more sophisticated understanding in a certain sense. I mean, no, nobody wants to do that, but they're more right in understanding that's needed than, you know, some sort of, I don't know, modern, you know, liberal religion where God is all love and there is no judgment, you know, needed to be appeased by God. I've, yeah, I, I, I think that's the case. And, um, but again, you know, that God would give his own son would never require that of, of a human. Well, the law of war, and I know we're just about out of time here. I guess we'll have to leave this out. So the, the Deuteronomy 20, this would be good for you to read. So read the whole chapter, Deuteronomy 20, 1 to 20. It's 20 verses. And it is, it has been called the law of war for Israel. Uh, and what you see in it, you see regular war, which I talked about at the beginning, ordinary war, and there are certain laws for that. And Israel, by the way, the laws that God gives Israel for ordinary war were about the most humane and uh, uh, relaxed that you could find anywhere in the world at this time. Um, the other nations uh, were much more uh, than Israel was here. So here's God even, you know, at this level um, offering. For example, the, the, the first offer in war for Israel, when they go to a city not under the ban, not in the land that they are particularly and uniquely and only for that time, required to wipe out because of God's judgment and God is holy, but anything outside the land, they were to offer peace. And if the city said yes, no one would die. No property would be taken. No people would be enslaved. That never happened in the ancient world, ever. If a city surrendered, you took the men, maybe you killed some of them, you took the women and the children, you took their stuff. Israel was not allowed to do that. If a city said surrendered, they became a vassal state. They would pay tribute to Israel. But you kept your land, you kept your occupation, you kept your freedom, you know, and that was unheard of in the ancient world. And that's the ordinary law for war. You also get the holy war, and we're going to look at that a little bit more. But um, hopefully uh, this has clarified maybe what has been, you know, a troublesome concept for you. You know, how could God do this? Well, you know, think of the other judgments like Noah, and then think of the ultimate judgment. You know, on the last day, it's not going to just be kill them in this world, but God's going to throw everyone into hell forever. And so even the Canaanites being destroyed and even the flood of Noah is going to look like small potatoes compared to what God does on the last day. But that will be a day of perfect justice. And that, again, is glorious to God in that the wicked will be destroyed, which is what they deserve. Uh, and the righteous will be saved. And again, we don't deserve that. So the, the real thing is that why does God save anybody? That's the really hard thing to get, not how can God judge? God has to judge. The idea, you know, the, the more difficult thing is how can he not judge us? How can we get to heaven? And that's the glory of the gospel, right? That God could save sinners who deserve the same thing that these other ones are getting. So, well, let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your glorious grace, Lord God, and how you brought it about the great cost to you, that you purchased it by the death of your own son, the unjust and wicked murder of your own son and you allowed it and you willed it and you planned it simply to save sinners like us who don't deserve it. So Father, help us not to be shocked so much by your judgments 
but to be amazed by your grace. For all of that, Lord God, is, is from you. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.